so if you have been with us at all over the last month or so, you know that we haven't been in a formal sermon series um, once we finish the Sermon on the Mount. I've just kind of been preaching on whatever the Lord lays on my heart every week, sort of a summer spiritual grab bag. And this week I felt led more to a topic than a scripture passage. And the reason for that is it came to my attention uh, early this week that someone I know of very recently died of a drug overdose. And please don't feel like you should express sympathy to me because this is somebody who, when I heard that they died, I had to think about, wait, do I remember that person? <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I do. I haven't thought about that person in years. Um, but this person was uh, the same age as me. And for some reason, I just was haunted by that all week. I couldn't stop thinking about this person dying prematurely of an overdose. And I thought, well, maybe that's the Holy Spirit telling me that I need to talk about addiction this week. So that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to start by acknowledging that I cannot deal with the topic of addiction uh, sufficiently in a 20-25 minute sermon. So this is a starting point. Uh, but I think it's an important starting point. So I tried to do a little bit of uh, research on statistics. And I, I can't say for sure that I know these numbers are correct, but these are from addictioncenter.com, uh, where it claims that one out of every 16 people in America has an addiction to drugs and or alcohol. So one out of every 16. That is a huge number of people. Uh, also, according to addictioncenter.com, um, deaths from drug overdoses have tripled in America since 1990. So we're on an unfortunate upswing trajectory um, in America. For every 20 deaths in America, one of them is related to alcohol abuse. One out of every 20. Uh, and I'm sure most of us have heard about the opioid crisis in America. Uh, for years, doctors prescribed opioids for people's pain, not realizing um, how addictive they were. And so a lot of people, through no fault of their own, became addicted to, to opioids. And uh, actually, in 2017, the Department of Health and Human Services declared a public health emergency around opioids uh, due to abuse and overprescription. And it's actually estimated that about 130 Americans die every day of opioid abuse. So drug and alcohol addiction, extremely common. Uh, it's very, very likely that either you or someone you love uh, suffers from addiction. But of course, the problem of addiction is much bigger than just drugs and alcohol. Uh, we have an addiction to anything that we compulsively turn to to feel good, but that actually wrecks uh, wreaks negative consequences in our lives. So we can be addicted to unhealthy food. Uh, we can be addicted to sex and pornography. We can be addicted to social media. We can be addicted to seeking attention and approval from other people. And uh, we could be ad addicted to looking at our smartphones. Uh, you might remember that back at the beginning of the year, before COVID hit, you know, those 
halcyon days when things were normal. Um, we had a sociologist from the University of Connecticut, Dr. Brad Wright, come and speak on the problem of smartphone addiction. And he talked about how when we get notifications on our phone, and we're compelled to look at them because a lot of the time those notifications will be somebody liked something that we posted or something like that. And when we get that kind of affirmation, it's like a little bit of dopamine gets released in our brain and it makes us feel good. And so we can end up compulsively checking our phones to get that little hit of dopamine. And what's actually going on in our brains is very similar to what happens in a drug addict's brain. So uh, now, I mean, something like smartphone addiction might not seem like that big of a deal, but when you consider how much it affects your daily life, how much time it takes out of your day, how much it reorients your attention, uh, how much it can affect your relationships with other people, it is actually a very serious thing. Uh, food addiction can be a serious addiction, right? That can wreak havoc on our bodies. Uh, pornography, also very serious, can have very damaging effects on relationships and on the soul. So addiction takes many, many forms. And uh, I think that given the particular circumstances we're in right now, we are all more susceptible to our addictions than usual uh, because we're more isolated than normal. Uh, we, many of us have less activities going on. Uh, because of what's going on with the pandemic. So this topic feels especially relevant to me right now. So addiction takes many forms. It's very rare to find someone who does not or has never struggled with an addiction of some kind. Uh, and the reason for that is very simple, right? It's because we all want to feel good. And we all want to find short and easy ways to feel good, uh, especially if we're in some kind of emotional pain, if we've suffered some sort of abuse or trauma, uh, or if we're struggling with guilt or shame, we're going to be especially susceptible to addiction because we're in pain, right, and we want to feel better, and the quickest, easiest way to feel better is something that we could get addicted to. Right? Something that we compulsively go to to numb the pain, but in the long run it actually uh, it increases our pain because it has negative consequences in our lives. Now, rightly or wrongly, I think the church has a reputation for dealing with addiction like this. Don't do that. That's a sin. That's bad. Shame on you, you addict. Shame on you, you drunkard. And I'm not saying that reputation is entirely fair. There are many churches, church programs that have dealt with addiction in much better ways than that. Okay? But there are some people who, unfortunately, that is the way that they deal with this problem. That's the way that they respond to it. And I want to be clear that I don't think that's a good way of dealing with it. Um, because when you talk that way to somebody, what do you do? You, you make them feel bad. In fact, that's actually the whole point, right? Is to say, you, you know, I, I need you to feel bad about this so you change your behavior. But as soon as somebody feels bad, who's already susceptible to an addiction, what happens when they feel more bad? Well, they're going to want to feel good. So how, what's the quickest way to feel good? 
It's to go to their addiction, right? So the, the shaming thing uh, doesn't work very well. It's a terrible place to, st to start in dealing with addiction. So rather than dealing with addiction by shaming, I want to start with a verse from Galatians. Uh, you don't have to turn there. It's very quick. Very important verse, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, what does that mean? It's kind of a weird verse, right? It sounds redundant. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. What that is telling us is that there is something inherently valuable to God about the state of freedom for us, about being in that state. That is what we are created for. We're not created to be in bondage, right? We are created to be free. Now, that raises a question, which is the kind of question that philosophers and theologians love to, to debate over, which is, what is true freedom? What does it actually mean to be free? If freedom is this important to God that he would set us free for the sake of being free, what actually is freedom? And I think that we kind of have this intuitive understanding of what freedom is, so I don't want to go to a lot of trouble to, to define it. But one important thing to recognize is that freedom doesn't simply mean being able to do whatever we want. Right? Sometimes we think of it that way. But that in itself can be a form of bondage because it's a slavery to our own desires. Um, sometimes freedom is having the ability to say no to something that we want, right? to, tr to transcend our desires in the moment, and that's real freedom. You know, if somebody uh, struggles with alcoholism, Freedom is not being able to reach for the drink, right? Freedom is being able to resist the drink despite the strong pull toward it. So true freedom includes this ability uh, to transcend impulses that might be uh, negative uh, or affect our lives negatively. So freedom is living as God intends, right? It's being able to live the way that God created us to be. And I think that we can all agree that if we have a real addiction, that robs us of that kind of freedom, right? Uh, when we compulsively turn to something and that compulsion has negative consequences on our lives, that compulsion is like a chain around us and it's a chain that, that limits us. It holds us back from fullness of life. And one of my favorite things that Jesus said is, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. I came that they might have life and have it to the full. So let's start there, right? Not with shame, not with that's bad, that's a sin, uh, don't do that. Uh, but with this, whatever your addiction might be, know this, Jesus wants to set you free. Jesus cares about your freedom. He created you to be free. He wants you to be free. Jesus wants you to experience fullness of life. God cares about that. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, whatever your addiction is, trust. God can break that chain. He loves breaking chains. And chances are you cannot break that chain on your own strength. You can't do it. You need God's help. And if you feel like, well, there's no hope 
for me breaking whatever chain you're thinking of in my life. Uh, I want to encourage you to turn with me right now to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. So if you have a Bible or you want to follow along uh, on your phone, if you have a Bible app, turn to Luke 8, verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Now, the reason I'm reading this story right now is, is not because I'm trying to imply that if we have a, an addiction, we definitely are demon-possessed. Okay, uh, That's not the point here. But I do think that if we have a severe addiction, there's aspects of this demon-possessed man that we can probably identify with. There's some parallels here. Uh, this man has no self-control at all, right? He is not in possession of himself. Literally, he is possessed by a demon. He's also lost everything. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't even have clothes that he can wear. And in severe cases of addiction, right, that's the sort of thing that happens, right? People end up on the street. Uh, also, no one else seems to be able to help this guy either, right? I don't know if people are necessarily trying to help him, but they're trying to impose some kind of structure on him, right? They keep trying to bind him, and, and that's not working. He keeps breaking the chains. And for family members who love somebody who struggles with an addiction, a lot of the time that's what it feels right. Like you try to impose some kind of order, some kind of structure on this person's life, and they just keep breaking out of it. They can't be uh, controlled. And then I'm especially struck by that last line, which says that the demon drove the man into solitary places. And I think there's another parallel there with addiction, because... Uh, when we're in bondage to an addiction, that often has this, this uh, unfortunate consequence of separating us from other people, right? It makes it hard for other people to trust us. It makes us hard for us to be honest with other people about what's going on in our lives. And so there's this isolating uh, effect to addiction. So I see a lot of parallels here between this man and someone struggling with severe addiction. This man is very much in chains, both literally and figuratively. But Jesus frees him. Uh, move down to verse 35, and we can see the results of his encounter with Jesus. Uh, it says, The people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So this guy is completely transformed. 
He is no longer in a solitary place. He's dressed. He has possession of himself. He can think for himself. He's in his right mind. Uh, he's been freed. And his transformation is so dramatic that the people see it and they're terrified. And you might think, why would that be? Shouldn't they be celebrating? This, this crazy guy is actually now under control. But what they're witnessing, they know, goes so against the usual pattern of events that they can't help but see it as supernatural. And when we come in contact with something supernatural, divine power, it can be overwhelming, it can be frightening. And so they're afraid of Jesus. But of course, Jesus' healing power should not terrify us. Right? It should not lead us away from him or ask him to leave. It should lead us toward him. And it should give us hope. And this story should give us hope. Because if you struggle with an addiction and you're thinking, there is just no way out of this hole that I've gotten into. There's no way that I can gain possession of myself again. This story is clear evidence that that is not true. Because however far gone you are, I don't think you're as far gone as this guy. This guy was really, really, really far gone, right? But he was healed. And so no, through Jesus, there is healing power for you as well. But then that leads to the question, well, how does that healing power work in our lives? How do we experience it? How do we access it? Well, one story that I think can give us some insight into that, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One day, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins except God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. So in this story, we have a man who wants, to, wants healing, right? A paralytic. Uh, and so his friends go to great lengths to get him to Jesus, because a paralytic can't get to Jesus on his own. Uh, Jesus is surrounded by crowds, so the only way that they can get this paralyzed man to Jesus is to lower him through a hole in the roof. Uh, so these friends have gone to great lengths to get him at Jesus' feet. And what I find extremely interesting is that when Jesus looks at this man who's been lowered through the roof, he looks at him and he doesn't say, get up and walk right away. What does he say? He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, as an aside, that's very significant because the only person or only being who is supposed to have authority to forgive sins is God alone, which makes sense, right? If you've wronged God, the only one who should have authority to forgive you is God. And yet here is Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. And that's why the Pharisees and the religious leaders get upset because they know he's putting himself on equal authority with God. And I just want us to recognize that as an aside because sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Um, but if you read the Gospels with an open mind, you'll be able to see time and time again that Jesus does things to indicate that he has the same authority as God. And this is one of those times. Um, but anyway, the reason I brought up this story is because I want us to notice that before this man experiences healing, he is told, your sins are forgiven. Right? That precedes the healing. And sometimes, before we can heal, we need to receive forgiveness through Jesus. Sometimes, before we can heal, we need to receive forgiveness through Jesus. Especially if we're looking for healing from addictions. And that's because one of the reasons that our addictions persist is because we are dealing with feelings of shame and guilt and inadequacy. And, of course, the problem is that our addiction then compounds those feelings, right? Because when we indulge in that addiction, then we feel bad. We feel more shame, more guilt, more inadequacy, which then leads us to seek uh, relief, which leads us back to the addiction, uh, the way I've heard it described is, you know, Satan tempts you with something. He says, hey, look at this thing. Look at it. It'll make you, it'll make you feel better. And so you're like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And then you try it, and then you feel terrible because, you know, it wasn't something you were supposed to indulge in. And then the devil says to you, oh, you're so awful. You're so awful for indulging that. What a terrible sinner you are. You don't deserve anything. You're pathetic. And then you just, ah, I need relief, I need relief. And then he, he holds it up again and he says, oh, look at this thing I got for you. And then you indulge in it again. And the cycle just keeps going, this vicious, vicious cycle. And what we need to break that cycle is not simply to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Uh, what we need is to hear the voice of God speaking into our lives and saying, friend, your sins are forgiven. To hear the voice of God saying, I know your life is a mess. I know you've sinned. I, I, I know uh, you've been compulsively turning to shameful things to try and find relief. But you, I'm not holding that against you. And if you want proof of that, think of Jesus suffering on the cross for you. That's how much I love you. You are valuable. You are forgiven. In the Gospel of Luke, there's this moment where the religious leaders confront Jesus because they, they say, you're hanging out with sinners too much. Why are you hanging out with sinners? And Jesus responds to them by telling three parables in a row. And each parable is about something that is lost, being found, and then the joy that comes from that recovery. So he tells a story about a shepherd who has lost one sheep. The shepherd has 100 sheep, 99 are fine, but one has gone missing. And so the shepherd goes out 
He leaves the 99 behind, he pursues that one sheep, and when he finds that sheep, he's overjoyed, he puts the sheep on his shoulders and goes home, and then he lets everybody know when he gets back, I found it, to celebrate. And then the second parable Jesus tells is about this woman who has 10 silver coins, she loses one of those coins, and then she turns her whole house upside down looking for it, she, she looks for it during the night, she t- it says she lights a lamp so that she can find it. She's just set on finding this one coin. And then when she finds it, she lets her friends know, I found it, and she celebrates. And then the third parable, probably the most famous one of all, it's, it's my favorite, is the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of a father whose son comes to him and says, I want my inheritance early, which is a huge social faux pas. Uh, it's very rude because that's kind of like saying, I just wish you were dead. And he takes all the money, and it says that he goes and squanders it on wild living. It's not real specific about what that means, but I think we can fill in the blank. And I imagine that a lot of the behavior that this young son was engaged in would be the kind of activities that we would associate with addiction. And he lets his addictions play out until all that money is gone, and until he is reduced to caring for pigs, which in the Jewish culture would be a very, very lowly thing to do because pigs were regarded as unclean animals. And it says that he's so hungry that he sees the pigs eating their food and he wishes that he could eat what the pigs are eating. So his addictions have brought him to this incredibly low place. He's utterly lost. He's not free. He's enslaved. And so then what does he do? He decides, well, I'll go back to my father's house and I'll just beg him to hire me as a hired hand. I'll I'll work to to pay back the inheritance. Probably he'll take the rest of his life, but he'll, he'll go back to do that. But when he starts coming home, before he even gets there, his father sees him from a distance and he runs toward him and he embraces him and he, he, he said, I says, son, I'm so glad you're home. And he throws a party for him. And so remember the context for these three stories, right? Jesus has been asked, why do you hang out with sinners? And so what is Jesus saying through these stories? He's saying God is like the shepherd looking for that one last lost sheep. God is like the woman looking for her lost coin. You know, God is like that father that celebrates when his foolish son comes home and then he throws a party for him. God takes so much delight in someone who is lost coming home. God takes so much delight in recovery. God's not content just to have the 99 sheep who haven't gone astray, the the good ones, the obedient ones, right? That's not satisfying for God. God wants to go after the ones who have gone wayward, the ones who are astray, the ones who have uh, severe addictions and problems. And he gets so much joy when they come home. And so if you struggle with addiction, I believe that healing starts with seeing yourself in those parables. You are the lost sheep. You are that coin that is so valuable to that woman that went missing. You are that 
lost son who the father embraces and welcomes home despite all your mistakes, despite all the, the ways you've screwed up. So fighting freedom starts with realizing God is not content to let you go. He's not. And he wants you to receive his words, friend, your sins are forgiven. And that is the truth that has to start your journey of recovery. It's the truth that has to permeate the whole journey of recovery. And it's the truth that should permeate all of our lives, whether we're struggling with a severe addiction or not. That Jesus declares and invites us to receive, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't want to be uh, simplistic here. I know I said at the start, uh, I can't deal with this topic sufficiently in just a few, a few minutes in one sermon. So, no, overcoming addiction is a journey. It's a process. Uh, it's a journey that we take with God. And I encourage you, uh, if, if you have not sought help for a severe addiction in your life, I, I pray that this sermon would be something that kind of kick-starts kick you in that direction. If you're looking for a therapist or for uh, a recovery program, uh, email me about that. I promise you I will keep that confidential. Uh, but I would love to help you if you want my help in, uh, in doing that. Uh, I also encourage you to recognize that there is freedom in confession. There's something about speaking aloud <clears throat> to people that we trust what we're going through that gets it out into the light and helps it to remove some of its power over us. Um, so I encourage you, talk to somebody. Don't let the demon of addiction drive you into a solitary place because that's where it wants you and that's where uh, it's going to be able to uh, continue to abuse you. But once you can start to get it out in the open, uh, you can begin to heal. So, God wants you to be free. Know that. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And if you need help, let today be the day that you start to seek it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for the reminder this morning, whether we are struggling with an addiction or not, uh, that you are not content uh, to lose any of the ones you love. Uh, that you pursue us, Lord. That you pursue the wayward sheep. Uh, you look for the lost coin. You embrace uh, the son that has squandered his inheritance. Lord, we thank you for that reminder. And I pray that this morning uh, you would open our hearts to receive your invitation of forgiveness, uh, to see ourselves as valuable, to see ourselves as enough, Lord. God, I pray that you'd break down walls of guilt and shame and fear. Lord, we want to experience the life to the full that you came to bring. We want to experience the freedom that you value. We pray that you would break chains today and in the coming weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.